1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets, times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Zach here with you today. I've managed to poach this one from Alex and Kit, who are going to be absolutely seething when they realise what they've missed out on, because we are talking about Bermond of Taranto, somebody that I've always considered to be a bit of a kind of scoundrel and kind of like the scallywag of the first crusade, but as we've been discussing... Before we've started recording, basically I've swallowed the Byzantine propaganda wholesale and I'm about to receive an education. To give me that education, I am joined by Georgios Theotokis, who's a historian specialising in the Eastern Mediterranean from late antiquity through to the Middle Ages. He's currently based in Istanbul and has written some fantastic books about Norman campaigns and Byzantine military tactics in the Middle East and Mesopotamia. But we're here today to talk about his latest book, which is all about Alex and Kit's favourite per- person from history, Bermond of Taranto. George, great to see you. I know we've had a, a good laugh already, uh, <laughs> talking about how people are idiots um, and how I've been an idiot to believe Anna Komnena. How are you?
3: <laughs> many, thanks for the, many thanks for the invitation. And no, I might say, you know, that you're not an idiot, but you're just... Uh, believe, And that was the point of the Byzantine propaganda to make most of the people believe, you know, what they wanted the people to believe, uh, to listen to their story, their side of the events. And um, Anna Kondina is a very persuasive author. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start talking
2: about who Berman was then. Where did he come from and what were his early kind of years
3: like? Um uh in both of my uh books, not only in the biography of Boynwell, but also my first book, the Norman Campaigns in the Balkans, which was actually my PhD thesis that I actually published a few years later uh in the form of a monograph. I use the term, well, some historians don't like it, but you know, uh, I use the term soldiers of fortune. And this is a term uh coined by not by me, of course, but by other historians to represent the um Adventurers or the freebooters, as uh, Julius Norris, you know, likes to portray them, the Normans in the south and the Normans in the Mediterranean in general, because the story of the Normans and, of course, Robert Kießgard and Boyman is a story. Or is a, um, is a story that I would like to see Hollywood film being made about them, uh, because it's a story of freebooters. It's a story of a gang of freebooters that comes from uh from normandy the story of uh, second or third born sons who had no future in normandy and they decide to take the future into their own hands and they uh they descend uh to the mediterranean they like the climate well who doesn't and they like the uh they they describe the norman the 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 norman historians describe apulian calabria as this, as uh, a country flowing with riches and milk and uh, rich products and fruits. And when they send their news back, then you know all the rest of the Normans, that come south. Uh, there is a flood of Norman soldiers. And Bohemond was born, uh, we don't know exactly the date, but in the early 1050s. And he is, again, the product of this adventure of the whole family of the haute um, He was born... Uh, in a region where the Normans were still trying to establish themselves. Uh, they still haven't managed to, uh, well, to win power from the Byzantines, not yet. Uh, and we have uh, the father of, uh, of Boymond, Robert Giscard, who had been established in Calabria, and He is trying to expand his own principality in the south of Italy. And it is in this climate of uncertainty, of geopolitical uncertainty, that um, Bohemond is born. It's born in the castle of San Marco Argentano, hence his baptismal name, which is uh, not Bohemond, of course. It was Mark, uh, which is a very masculine name, and it was used to denote... Uh, the power of the lion in many cultures, and this is what I also mentioned in my book. In many, in many cultures in Europe and in Asia, it is used to denote masculinity and great warrior strength. So nothing. So it is not a coincidence that he takes his name. Uh, he had a great and a very bright future ahead of him. So uh, he's born between 1050 and 1058. We don't know exactly the, um, the year uh, in Calabria in the midst of a very uncertain norman principality that hadn't been established yet fully and uh, that's why i'm saying that he's the product of his age the product of a very uncertain period
2: and it's interesting what you just said at the start of that when you're talking about how you know these are second and third sons these are people who aren't going to inherit And i remember reading an article whilst i was having to teach some of my students at uni a few years back about this kind of almost creation of an empire through these, and the argument that was being put forward was that these sons are effectively kind of your your explorers going out into these regions and kind of creating little pockets from which they then subsequently expand. Would you agree with that?
3: They are the rejects, if I I can use the term. (laughs) They they are the rejects, they are are the troublemakers. And if you are are in a region as as Normandy in the first half of the uh, the 11th century, you don't want them. You don't want troublemakers and you have very bad experience with troublemakers. So you want to get rid of them. And, you know, part of this myth is, again, to send, they visit Italy and they visit the Mediterranean area. Not only, you know, they they, they go to Spain, they, there are uh, adventurers also in Spain uh, in the south of Italy. And of course, in Byzantium, there are many uh, uh, Frankish, and I put it in, of course, in inverted court, many Frankish mercenaries who come uh, back and forth from Byzantium so they know the Mediterranean region in general so they know the uh, the political entities in the region they know where there are the strong principalities and the weaker principalities and of course they go on pilgrimage which is always a nice opportunity to spy on the on the politically fragile uh, principalities anywhere and they, understand that the region, uh, the geographical region south of Rome, is ripe for conquest. And they, uh, as typical against soldiers of fortune, they offer their services and then they decide that they like it there and they are not going (laughs) to leave.
2: For the moment, I'm staying with the kind of scoundrel scallywag kind of analogy um, nothing that you've said so far has convinced me that Berman isn't out to just kind he's on the make you'd see let's see let's see now the Adriatic well what's happening on the other side of the Adriatic ends up being quite key for Berman you talked about how you know he's born into this family in Italy where they're trying to establish themselves but the Balkans are key for Berman's story aren't they what happens why is that the case
3: um, first, um, let me give a, a bit of a background uh, for the geopolitical events uh, during this this period of the 1060s and the 1070s. We always have to look at uh, when we're talking about empires and especially the Byzantine Empire. We have to look at you know the broader picture and you take a big map and understand. Um, what is happening on both sides of the empire's very vast frontiers? So we have the Normans trying to establish themselves in the 10, 1050s, 1060s, and of course, 1071 is the year when uh, Bari, which was the capital of Byzantine Logombardia, falls to the Normans. But on the other side, we have a much, 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 much more significant invasion, the invasion of the Seljuks. And of course, we have uh, a few weeks ago was the 950th anniversary of the Battle of Manzikert. A few weeks ago, uh, so uh, this is this. This was a defeat of. Uh, it was an extremely significant geopolitical defeat for the Byzantine Empire that takes place in the same year as uh, Bari, the fall of Bari. But the point is that for the empire, the east was much more strategically, much more significant than the west. So, if we put that in perspective, then we understand. How and why the Normans established themselves in the western fringes of the Byzantine Empire? Um, now, why Robert Giscard and, of course, his second in command Boymon, why they why they take an interest and why they decided to invade uh, the Balkan um, uh, the Balkan provinces of the empire, the Byzantine Empire? Uh, there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all. Uh, The Byzantine uh, diplomatic uh, maneuvers, in the sense that um, Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire, throughout its history, wanted to win battles without actually taking to the field. Um, It is a, a, the the history of this uh, understanding, this perception, um, goes back to the Roman Empire. Uh, and we can encapsulate that by saying that we can defeat the enemy without shedding any blood, which means diplomacy and money and bribing. From what the primary sources tell us, many of the rebellions, the apulian rebellions, against Robert Giscard's regime were funded by whom? By Constantinople, and especially by the governor of where? Of the governor of Jirakim across the Adriatic. That's one thing. Now, second, um, what do you do when, well, when expansion uh, is still in progress, then everyone's happy. Then your officers, your feudal officers are happy. What happens when this expansion stops, ceases? Then the UN Robert Giscard would have had many of his senior nobles being unhappy that they are not gaining more land. So there is one theater of operations, which is Sicily, but there is also another much more lucrative theater of operations where you can establish principalities, which is on the other side, on the opposite side of the Adriatics. That's number two. And three, if we are to believe only a couple of primary sources. because Bohemond was his firstborn son, being relegated into the status of a, a bastard, but still trusted very much by Robert Giscard, he was not um, put aside. There is, um, whether, we, whether, we, whether we can believe these primary sources, Robert Giscard wanted to conquer um, a part of the Byzantine provinces across the Adriatic to give it to Boymont. Whether it is credible or not, we don't know. I'm just uh, putting it as an option. So the uh, influence of Byzantium in southern Italy was immense. But also, apart from that, apart from the prestige and the, cult- the cultural prestige that the empire had in the south of Italy, we have to look at these pragmatic reasons. They have to stop the flow of money coming from the eastern side of the Adriatic. And also, um,
1: uh,
3: uh, uh, the Balkans were another lucrative region for conquest. So that's why we see in 1081 um, Robert Giesgaard launching his campaign across the Adriatic in Dirac.
2: And you talk about Bermond being a bastard. Does that mean that he's got something to prove? Because the flip Most side is likely. Because you talk Most about how likely. he actually has a lot of trust placed upon him. So, how does that kind of balance out in, in what we know about how his mind worked?
3: Um, he he has to prove he has to prove probably not his father, but he has to prove uh, himself as a worthy noble and of course as a worthy strategist and a worthy a worthy warrior to the Apulian and Calabrian nobles, so the high-ranking nobles who were fighting with his father because he knows that his father will eventually die. And again, we see it in 1085 that he also struggles back to um, uh, to the south of Italy, to Apulia, to claim what basically whatever he can. And if he was not a worthy and a very capable warrior, not only a strategist but a tactician but also an individual knight. if he wasn't the worst warrior then he wouldn't have stood, he wouldn't have stood the chance. So it, it, uh, Bohemond is always a man who is trying to prove himself in many levels because he knows from early on that he will in theory he will never get his father's dominions so he is again he's an he's a very anxious man <laughs> so he's a very stressed man and he's quite
2: a formidable figure isn't he uh, you know whatever yes. you think of him there's no um, taking that away from him um, exactly so so is this where he gets his his ambition from and that kind of almost limitless energy that he displays is it all about trying to to prove himself uh, or is there more to it
3: uh, no, from what, from what I understand, again, you know, we cannot, uh, the, the, the psychological, por- the, the portrait that you know, Anna Kognina paints, of course, is, uh, I, I wouldn't call it very objective, but uh, I mean, to get into the psyche of the man, um, you, you need a psychologist more than a historian, basically, but, uh, you know, it's very interesting to try to understand, you know, how he was thinking, and I, I believe that, yes, you know, it's his constant um, constant struggle to prove himself again, not only to uh, not only to Byzant, not only to the Byzantines, because you know we are uh, his his struggle with the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos is the one that dominates. You know the stories about him, but it's not only that. It's 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 that he's trying to prove himself to. Probably not so much to his father because, again, his father trusts him and he's a very trusted second-in-command of his armies, but mostly to try to prove himself to the Apulian magnates, to the Apulian nobles, the senior Apulian nobles, to prove himself. And maybe, you never know, maybe he, would, he may, might have been thinking that he could have enticed some of them into open rebellion against Roger Borsa. We, 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 we will never know, but maybe.
2: And there are plenty of things that he's good at, right? You know, that's we, we've touched on this already. You know, he is successful. Yes. yes. One of those is strategy. So what is it that makes him a particularly good strategist within the context of this
3: period? Um, he's a very good strategist. And I believe that, you know, even in in, in in modern military academies, he would have, you know, graduated top of his class because he has a very good understanding of geopolitics. That's my impression. He has a really good understanding of geopolitics and simple politics in the sense that, you know, he, know, he knows where the wind blows. <laughs> he knows, you know, who's going to be his ally this year, next year, or for the next five years. Or he knows when to change allies and when to change sides, um, you know, from Emperor Alexis Komnenos to Gradually disassociate himself, you know, as, 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 as further away from Constantinople, you know, the, the armies of the first crusade marched, you know, you can sense that, you know, he the more he wants to disassociate himself, you know, with this Byzantine treacherous emperor in Constantinople and try to make, try to see if he could make some alliances with other crusade leader, leaders if they cared. Because I think that he had already by, you know, 10, uh, 10, early 1098, he had already set his eyes on uh, on Antioch. So he knows, he knows how to, he, underst- he understands, he has a very good understanding of geopolitics. He has a very good understanding of uh, how to, when to give battle, how to give battle. But before we go into the level of tactics, then yes, he is a magnificent Um, strategist and I think that even in modern military academies and staff colleges um, he would have excelled.
2: So let's talk about the tactics then, things where we're we're kind of going there because it's not just at ground level it's it's not just kind of at the top that he's competent he's also very kind of competent at ground level so what makes him a good tactician you know uh, perhaps it's worth kind of explaining a little bit about how warfare works during this period in the process but why is What's Berman bringing Uh, to the table
3: that others don't? Adaptability. He adapts very easily because let's not forget that, you know, the the Normans come from a very, very difficult geopolitical and military background. So, um, again, one of the terms that I and other military historians are using, you know, he comes from a very different military culture. So, you know, the Normans and, of course, the Anglo-Normans and the Normans, you know, they are fighting in a different way. You know, the, the emphasis is on heavy, heavy cavalry attacks. Um, and the infantry plays more of a secondary role, especially when it comes to sieges, uh, siege operations. But, you know, in the Mediterranean, there is a, there is a different, uh, that's a different question altogether. So, you know, you have, uh, and the more east you go, you have more the influence coming from the steppes. So you have uh, Turkic uh, horse archers who have been playing a significant role, even in Byzantine armies, the Byzantines have been acquainted with these uh, horse archers already since the middle of the ninth century, they have not been very good at using them. But you know they've been aware about you know Turkish horse archers for many many centuries, and w- w- the main reason why Boymund became eventually the main uh, leader. Of the of the first crusade was that he was very well versed and very well experienced in fighting against all these different enemies in the Mediterranean. So not only the Turks, but also he was he knew how the Byzantines fought. He had fought them, you know, in 1081. He knew how the Arabs, you know, fought because he had fought them again in the in the, in the south of Italy and in Sicily. He could speak Greek, which was extremely useful when it came to face to face. Um, negotiations with uh, the, uh, the Greek officials and the emperor himself. And uh, you see already from the Battle of uh, Dorileo in 1097 that he knows what to do on the spot. He knows that the enemy, the Turks, were about to envelop them. And he knows that what to do. He knows how to deploy the infantry as a sort of a shield To protect what? To protect the heavy cavalry. And in Dorileum in 1097, and then later in 1098, outside uh, Antioch, and later, he adapts to the warfare of the region by doing exactly the same thing. He uses the infantry very effectively, but also another key thing, in all of these battles, in Antioch, the Battle of Harem, and then uh, at the Battle of Antioch on the Orontes River, he deploys his army in four divisions but he also keeps one division in reserve. Why is that? because he expected the Turks to try to envelop them that's why he kept the crucial crucially he kept the division in reserve. That shows that again he's not only a, a very good strategist but he uh, he's a very good tactician and one of the crucial, Aspects of a good tactician is to be able to adapt to the enemy, and he is also excellent in doing that. So you talk
2: about holding a division in reserve. Is that unusual during this period? I'm kind of thinking, sort of along the lines of what you're saying about how the Byzantine way of waging war seems to be: don't fight the battle. Well, one of the ways that you don't fight the battle is to kind of overwhelm your enemy with this with your strength and kind of make them think "Mm, this this isn't a good idea. So is yeah. that a difference in the way of thinking?
3: Uh, well, it's 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 remarkable because he's a bloody foreigner. Uh, he's not a Byzantine. So he, um, if you if you if you if you look at the uh, at what the military manuals are saying. So if you look at the strategikon of Maurice uh, uh, written about the sixth century, and then three three hundred years later, what uh, the Emperor Leo of the Sixth Tactica are saying, um, the Byzantines were deploying units in reserve. Exactly for that reason. So that you, they, they, they also had um, units, lightly armed units to protect the flanks, but of course they were deploying cavalry to protect the rear, exactly for that reason. But as we said, Boyman comes from a very different military culture. Um, how he learned that, I think, it, I mean, you learn from experience, basically. And, you know, he had fought the Byzantines and he had fought many other military cultures. And then you see that, you know, it, it was it was only natural to become the the leader of the First Crusade almost you know after they left you know Nicaea in in 1097 um, and you see in Bohemond the distillation of many different military cultures again the the military culture but also what the Byzantines have been teaching them um, and that's why you know he is a model warrior because he adapts and he distills. Um, decades of experience um, so yeah that, that that's what that's what makes him an exceptional strategist but also a tactician
0: selling a little or a lot
2: Is that why you call him a transcultural warrior in your books?
3: Exactly. And that's one of the things. Exactly. 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 Because from the first stage, where he faced his first um, Turkish detachment um, on the outskirts of Dirachium. so he he faced and he defeated two thousand uh, Turkish warrior horse archers um, uh, led by a Byzantine official, by a Byzantine uh, officer Vasilakis, but he defeated them. So from 1081 basically until. Uh, until Antio, until 1098, he is he shows remarkable adaptability and he learns on the way. That doesn't mean that he's not fallible. Um, he made mistakes, exactly the same mistakes later. That's why he was uh, he was captured uh, and he stayed in captivity for about three years. And again. I wish, you know, I could I could build a time machine to go back and ask him, you know, why did you do that? You know, yeah, uh, just why? And he pursued the retreating Seljuk Turks, you know, outside the city of Malatia or Melitini. Uh, uh, and this is something that, you know, he shouldn't have done. And then again later, uh, a few years later, uh, at 1104, where they lost again outside Edessa, um, which again proves that he's he's fallible he's not he's not the perfect soldier <laughs> anyway uh but uh we will never know why we will never know why he did he he made these mistakes
2: now there is a a gap before we get to the first crusade isn't there where yeah you know you've got berman kind of establishing himself as somebody to be reckoned with you get the first crusade starting in sort of 1199 and so on Uh, Sorry, 1099, not 1199, for heaven's sake, what am I on about? Um, Not going to live that one down. Um, So what's happening in that interlude? What's he doing?
3: Um, He, uh, between 1085 1085 and the failure of the second invasion of Robert uh, guard in the Balkans and the launching of the uh, the First Crusade, he's back in Italy. He's back in Italy. Well, he scrambled immediately after the death of his father. He and Roger Borsa, they scrambled back to Italy to basically claim whatever they could. Um, and there are, well, we can say that two, there, are, there are about two stages of a bickering row between um, Roger Borsa, who was the uh, successor of uh, Robert Discard and Bohemond, who established himself in the southeast of Apulia around Taranto, uh, those, were his, uh, those were his lands uh, given to him by, assigned to him by his, um, by his father. And uh, between 1085 and 1087, and then again, you know, after 1089, 1090.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Until more or less 1095, you know, you see them, you know, squabbling and you know uh, Bohemond constantly invading neighboring lands that belong, of course, to Roger Borsa, or they belong to his followers. Uh, in Campania, in the south, in Calabria. It's like you see him desperately trying to expand his limited, well, from medieval standards of a nobleman, his limited lands, um, uh, amount of land that he had in the southeast to the point where there was a deadlock because uh, crucially for Roger Borsa, he had the support of his uncle, Roger of Sicily, and the resources, the military resources from Sicily. And there was also the Pope, who uh, Pope Urban II, who had the very conciliatory attitude of his uh, predecessor, Gregory VII, that he was trying to resolve uh, the political powers in his immediate South, not because he cared about them, but, he, but, but because he cared about the safety of Rome, <laughs> most likely. Um, so again, to see how good of a strategist he was, in that case, but also later at 1104, in, in 1104, uh, in Antioch, he sees that there is no breakthrough, He's, that he can make no breakthrough, that he, he, he had reached his, his expansion had reached a deadlock. Uh, there is no future. So he has to um, write a new chapter in his history. So that's why uh, in 1096, he embarks uh, on the... Uh, on the First Crusade, and depending on who you read, whether it was a spontaneous move or whether it was a well, well-planned well um, uh, departure, yeah, <laughs> I leave it open. But again, in that 1104, you see exactly the same thing. He returns because he sees that there is no future until Antioch. He's pressed by two powers, by two major the, the superpowers of the region, and he cannot... Uh, his principality will be struggled, str- strangled to death.
2: And so he goes on crusade, and he meets amongst a whole host of other people, Anna Comnena, who uh, kind of writes this this story about. It, it's an odd one. See, Kit has this theory that there's uh, a tension, almost like a um, a lustful tension there.
3: <laughs> sort of, oh,
2: this this awful. Um, <laughs> manly sweaty guy called Berman turned up and he was so kind of rugged <laughs> first very really interested-
3: likely <laughs> uh, okay
2: so there we go the kid vindicated so I- I'm interested in that kind of give us more on that but what's the story about how he kind of rises to prominence in the first crusade? I was struck by what you said about how he becomes kind of in effect the leader because my understanding was always that you know you've got a few people who are all contenders for the leadership, and ultimately they've got to kind of sit down and work it all out between them. And Berman ends up sort of ends up being pushed to the side, which is why he goes off for to establish his principality at Edessa. So, so talk us through firstly the, the Anna Canona story, um, <laughs> mainly for Kit's benefit, um, <laughs> but then also kind of that power struggle within the First Crusade.
3: Uh, well, the story of Anakonina and Bohemond is a very is a, is a, is a story of whether we can call it a story of lust and passion I don't know but you know she was I, I think you know no, Anna Comine was born in 1081, so yeah she would have been you know about 17 uh, uh, 16, 17 at the time so very young uh, a very young woman uh, so uh, it, it 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 sounds to me very likely that you know he would have been, she would have been impressed, not by the status, of course, of O when He was, you know, after all, a savage barbarian. Let's not forget about that. But you know, he was tall, he was handsome, he had, you know, red-haired, handsome, you know, foreigner. So yeah. Uh I mean, he would probably have appealed to her sense of uh, I yes, uh, her sense of her sexuality, I don't know, but yes, it is, it is likely, it is very likely. But again, let's not forget that, you know, she, uh, Anna Komina, uh, begins to portray Boymond in a very vitriolic way after he betrays Alexis Komina. So it's like, you know, there is one Boymond and then there is another Boymond. Um, which makes her less subjective, of course, because the hero is Alexis Cominus, the hero of her work is her father, but yes. Um, and um, uh, when it comes to his role on the First Crusade, yes, of course, you know, the, the well, the, the, the people like it is, the, uh, is the leader of the Crusade, but when it comes to military leadership and, you know, in terms of strategic decisions and tactical decisions, then he has the best CV for it. Basically, he has by far the best city because, as I said before, he is experienced. He's experienced in the methods of warfare uh, in the region, of the region. So he has, um, he has experienced in fighting Turks and Byzantines and Arabs, etc., etc. He speaks the language. He doesn't need a translator, you know, to communicate with the local officials. And that's an asset. And he... Has had an encounter with the Byzantine emperor, <laughs> although in a different setting, a uh, long time ago. So they, and there is a very, there is a very strange and very funny uh, uh, episode of their first encounter, uh, Alexis Komnenos encounter and Bohemond's encounter in the imperial palace, where you know they start by not trusting themselves, but so you know gradually they break the ice. Uh, there is a there is a case when. Uh, um, Uh, the emperor invites Bohemond for a dinner. You know, what's better to break the ice? And, you know, he brings him, you know, a a dish that has been cooked by his own imperial cooks, and then another that has not been cooked, so that he uh, has his own cooks to cook it. And then he sends the cooked meal back to show that he doesn't trust the Byzantine emperor. And uh, then, you know, gradually there is this discussion about, you know, how... You Boymond betrayed me back then, and what do you want from me now, etc., 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 etc. So, uh, how Anna portrays Boymond and he, 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 she reveals her his background is uh, extremely important to show that again he has the best CV for the job, and he will prove it later on.
2: So we've talked about his role up to Antioch because Antioch is the big moment, right? This is where everything changes and I won't spoil exactly what happens, even though I've kind of done that a little bit already. Um, but you, you've got a, 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 if you like a crusade of two halves where Berman is concerned, the, the bit pre Antioch that we've discussed and then Antioch and post Antioch. So what is it about the Antioch episode that is his kind of big moment, if you will?
3: Um uh, from the stage where they reach Antioch and he actually takes over the, 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 the very critical role of logistics and supplying the, this huge army of, uh, of Crusaders that had been um, uh, that they had lost many men and horses of course you know through their uh, journey uh, during their journey from Nikia to Antioch so he takes this very critical role of supplying uh, the Crusader armies through the port of Saint Simeon. And again, because he has his connections with the Byzantines and, of course, Cyprus and, you know, the uh, the southern Turkish um, Anatolian coast is controlled by the imperial navy. So, again, he is the perfect man for the job. Um, and he, the story with Firuz, this Armenian who was guarding the tower and eventually, you know, he... Uh, he talks him into, you know, opening, l- letting his men scale the uh, the tower. Uh, is also a very famous one. And then after they take uh, Antioch and they defeat Kerboha, who was the emir of Mosul, um, you see how the only uh, senior noble and leader of the crusade, Raymond, uh, he tries to. Uh, Uh, Put some sort of a resistance and, you know, reminds uh, the the other leaders of the crusade, if we believe Anna, he was put in that role by Alexis Alexis himself, um, he's the only one who put some sort of a resistance and, you know, he reminds everyone that, okay, listen, you know, Antioch belongs to the emperor, you know, get yourselves together and, you know, our target is Jerusalem, just, you know, Let's get serious and let's focus on what is our real target. And when the others don't care, basically, this is my impression. And um, Bohemond probably had realized that many months in advance, and that's why he 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 already had this. Disassoci- he had tried to disassociate himself with the Byzantine emperor, especially seeing his chance at the Patikius, who was his representative, left. Departed, and he portrayed it as a treason by the Byzantine emperor and by himself, by uh, Taticius. uh So, if if you if you if you if you try to build an image of a scheming uh, uh, boy, that's I think that that's the perfect uh, episode to build this image uh, around that time. When he eventually sees that you know, his, his men have taken the largest part of Antioch, that no one basically cares about what happened except Raymond. The other ones want to go south, they want to move south to Jerusalem. So he reaches for this perfect opportunity, and he builds, gradually builds his own principality.: so And already... whether, we can, uh, whether we can call him an opportunist, I believe we can. Because, I mean, this is the irony, right? Antioch does not
2: get returned at any point to Constantinople. It becomes yes. its own little principality in its own right.
3: Because I think that he knows, he's very much aware that um, at that moment, because later Antioch would become a critical city for, the, for John and especially Manuel Comnenus, but at this moment... I believe that Boymon was very much aware, again, that's, what, that, 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 that's how uh, developed his sense of geopolitics was. He was aware that um, the, for Alexis komnenos Western Anatolia, the conquest of Western Anatolia, was much more important at that stage than Antioch. So, as a very good opportunist, he uh, grabbed the chance with both hands. Both hands. And he sets up this
2: principality... In Edessa, but it ends up being the shortest-lived of all of the Crusader states, doesn't it? Why is that?
3: Yeah, Baldwin. Well, because it was the principality that was the more exposed to many more enemies, probably, uh, because uh, it could, it uh, Edessa could be support could have been supported by uh, by Antioch and by Jerusalem, but you know it was the 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 frontiers of the the first principality, Baldwin's principality of Edessa, was facing enemies on all sides. And especially from the north, you had the Dunnismiths, and, and again, you had other minor sets of principalities in the east. So um, it was a matter of time, and that's why it fell. You know, that's why it fell so early. It was a matter of time. But it was uh, uh, strategy didn't favour <laughs> that particular principality. How typical then
2: was Bermond of uh of warriors during well particularly norman warriors during this time we've talked about you know great tactician great strategist are there contemporaries like him though you know is, is there a kind of uh, a scenario that you can dream up of Burmond meets X, and you know what the hell's going to go down there
3: um that you know again he's a product of a specific. he's a product of a specific period and he's a product of uh, many different cultures that merged in that specific region where he was born so uh, many people compare uh, bohemond with let's say some of the heroes of the crusades but you know we shouldn't do that because he uh, the heroes of the crusades many of the heroes of the crusades that were born there, or whether they traveled there or they didn't stay there for long um, and they, they had the Western European military mentality that dominated in their heads. He was not, you know, typic, was not the typical Western medieval chivalrous knight that you would see in romances of um, France or England or whatever. Um, he's a product of his age. He, he, he grew up and he matured in the sense of uh, becoming a warrior in a region that had been in the crossroads of many different civilizations and military cultures, again, from the South, but also from the East. And he proved that throughout his career. So that's why I want to consider him as a unique warrior. I mean, I don't want, um, I think that it would, it won't make justice to him if you compare him with any other, especially crusader hero like Richard the Lionheart for example though they have nothing in common yes they wanted to kill infidels (laughs) but they have not many things in common he's the product of his age and he's the product of a a society that um, merged many different cultures and climates together.
2: So finish the story for us we kind of touched on already how in the end, he, he sees the writing on the wall, realizes that Edessa is not gonna be the place to be in the long run. So what happens to him in the end? Well, he tries
3: his chances for a second time. But what happens when you face the mighty Byzantine Empire is that you lose, and the mighty Byzantine Empire will remain alive for another, almost another 450 years. So um, he realizes, and again, as a tremendous strategist that he had, that he was. He realizes that there is no breakthrough in, in the Middle East. And he, um, he understands that you know, he stands a much better chances if he not, not necessarily... I don't, I don't think that you know, he would ever have imagined you know, conquering the Byzantine Empire. What he, what he would have hoped was to destabilize the Byzantine Empire, perhaps bring down the dynasty, the Comunian dynasty. Because uh, Alexis Komnenos still um, he had a very young heir, um, and he hadn't established, let's say, an a, a, a dynasty. He was the first of his dynasty, and he had taken power by military coup. So he was Bohemond was very much aware of that. Uh, I think that he 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 would have tried to destabilize the empire, perhaps again um, uh, precipitate a change of an emperor and try to figure out a political settlement, let's say. This is what, I, th- I think realistically, this is what he hoped. I don't think that he wanted to, what he wanted, of course, but I don't think that he, knew he had any um, hopes or ambitions to conquer constantly. You know? Not at all.
2: How does he die then? Do we know?
3: We don't know, sadly. We don't, well, I think he died from a malaria, I think, but, you know, he, yeah, around 11.11, 11, but um, he's... Career after he failed after the Treaty of Diabolis, the Treaty of Diabolis is, is rather obscure, and that's sad because you know he was a hero that you know he he, he would have wanted for himself to have a very glorious ending. It's and it's like you know Tancred, uh, his uh, his nephew in days, it's like he steals you know gradually he steals the uh, the thunder of Bohemond because you know then again the focus in of this family again it uh, focuses on the east. Um, but um, sadly, we don't know very much uh, uh, about his years between 1108 and 1111 when he dies. Uh, apart a from his glorious his glorious mausoleum in Canosa, which I haven't, I still haven't visited. It's one of my dreams, but uh, I will do it after the pandemic.
2: Well, there you go, folks. There's a a place to go and visit when we're able to. George, this has been absolutely brilliant. I know that Alex and Kit are going to be absolutely seething having missed out on this one. So your book, Bermond of Taranto, Crusader and Conqueror, is available from Pen and Sword. Or folks, you can go to the History Hack bookstore and get it there. And George, thank you so much for this. This has been, I'm not sure. I think I'm still just a little bit convinced that he was he was a bit of a scallywag. But, you know, a, a scallywag <laughs> with a plan, you know, not just a complete
3: opportunist. As I said before, you've been reading too much of Anna Kumina. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Bye. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four, five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter, at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash historyhack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly... Also, have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub
1: regulars, thank you, and have a great day.